that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. Hello, my name is Bhagwati Gupta. I'm a professor of biology at McMaster University. My lab at McMaster is now more than 15 years old. And over the years, we have undertaken different projects and published lots of papers. The main theme of our research is basically two, actually. One is that how organs develop in animals and what genes and mechanisms, signaling mechanisms are involved and how genes control animal behavior. Related to that, we have also gotten into a new, very exciting area of research more recently, which is how genes control stress response. And so this is something that we feel that would be a major thrust of my research in the future years. And so this stress response affects the health and lifespan of animals, and that's something that I would be able to talk to you about. These research questions in my lab, they involve taking multidisciplinary approaches and lots of collaborations with researchers, both from Canadian and international universities. The training in my lab is through this multidisciplinary approaches has benefited lots of graduate, undergraduate students. The students have gone on to a you know, successful career, both in academia and industry, and uh, which I'm very proud of. Okay, so one question we always ask at the beginning, regardless of the person's background, is what does immortality or the word immortal mean to you? That's a good question. So the literal meaning of immortal or immortality is that you're living forever, right? But to me, it's more of a psychological or philosophical concept because no organism can be immortal, right? So it's more about being alive and even if you're not physically alive, right? That's what immortal to me means. And that would be by doing things like leading or participating in activities or making significant contributions that keeps your name alive, even after you're not physically living on Earth. Maybe a good example would be a famous scientist that I always admire is Albert Einstein for his groundbreaking work related to relativity and the light. And they're still relevant today. And so Einstein is not with us, but still we talk about him very regularly, right? So that's what mortal or immortality means to me. Okay, so I have a two-parter question for you based on that answer. Number one is, if you had the chance, would you like to extend your life to, let's say, 500, 1,000 years? Additionally, would you like to be immortal according to your definition? Yeah, according to my definition, immortal, yes. But in physical sense, I would say I would be more interested in extending life, but not being really immortal, okay? But also the extending life, has a catch. There's no point in living longer if the quality of life is poor, right? So one may be living longer but bedridden or need to rely on others to perform daily functions, and that's not the good thing. Now, note that I'm not referring to being poor in terms of not having enough money or health condition that affects people in early stage of life with lots of these genetic disorders people have, and that's a completely different thing. But uh, what I mean is extending life, which I'm interested in, is having a better health span. And so in biological science or terms, we use something called healthy aging. So it's not only living longer, but also maintaining healthy span. Uh, so you can carry out your normal activities reasonably well and being independent 
Uh, so your muscles are functional, your neurons, your brains are active, and your physiological functions are in good state, right? It's also worth mentioning related to this is something that we talk about is physiological or biological age of living systems and chronological age. So chronological age is defined by when you're born and how old you are. And whereas your biological age is how old your body behaves. And so these are two independent things and affected by lifestyle or medical interventions. So, for example, poor lifestyle might result into one being younger based on their date of birth, but their body may be much older physiologically. And so that's that's an important thing. Okay, well, I guess this is a good transition in terms of age. A lot of scientists, they always get asked this question, and people have a lot of different answers. But they always have this question of, is biological aging a disease? And we're just wondering what your take was on that. That's a good point. So aging, I don't think, is a disease. Aging is the result of breakdown of processes over time and how much you use your organs, you know, and so on. So it's a more decline of cellular processes, molecular processes, and it is a natural thing. And it's non-specific. So all organs are affected in the body, right? Although there might be time when some organ is accelerated more, aged more for whatever reason, and might then affect other parts of the body. But generally, it is overall decline in the fitness of the organism, right? I like to think about it is that our genes and proteins or molecules in our body or cells are like little machines. They're called micro-machines, right? And so they're continuously active, doing functions nonstop. And then the continuous use and the combined with external factors such as food that we eat, environment that we live in, cause these machines to slowly become less efficient with time. Okay. Why is that the case? Uh, there is a very interesting evolutionary aspect to that. And we can elaborate that more later on is that evolution basically selects living systems to basically allow them to just reproduce. Okay. So then you can survive and propagate population growth. And that is all that evolution selects. And so these micro-machines and so on, and in turn the cells and organs and the whole body, is just selected to be able to pass on our genes and reproduce. And after that, those cells could die or become less efficient, organs could fail and so on, and nature wouldn't care. And so in a way, the aging is a consequence of these machines being less efficient over time because nature is not selecting them. Okay, so just quickly, since we're on the topic of genes, we'll jump back later. Why is it that we're programmed for our organs to age? Shouldn't our genes be thinking of refreshing our organs or refreshing themselves so we can live longer? Yeah, so so that's also related to, as I said, about evolution selecting these machines to be efficient for only a specific purpose, which is to pass on the genes. And beyond that, it's not selected. And so it's like, you know, we as a human make certain products or objects with certain purpose, right? And if that purpose is served, we don't care how long the object is actually going to be functional or not, right? And so that's exactly what it is. So nothing, I would say philosophically as well, that nothing is designed to last forever. Everything is just selected for certain function, certain a purpose, and that purpose is done, and after that, it is no longer selected. So if you want something to be functional forever, be in a good state, it needs to have, you know, a lot more elements to that that makes it more robust over and over again, right? So if something starts to break down, there's got to be some compensatory mechanism to make it functional. And those compensatory changes would actually have to occur during evolution. 
and so create changes in the in our genes in the DNA, which you know, changes the proteins that could remain functional. And so what has happened so far is that nature selected these proteins or to or molecules to sort of perform certain function and hasn't cared about them making robust forever. Okay, and so they do their job, and over time they become less and less efficient, and then they fall apart. As a follow up to that, then because I guess you explained you only need your body to work for as long as I guess we need to reproduce, right? But then how is it that evolution's got like some animals living like a matter of days, if not, maybe there's even hours, and some that are, I think there's some, we talked about some other animals that are biologically immortal. Why are some so short then? And what's the point of having some creatures that are, quote unquote, biologically immortal then? So, you know, it's puzzling that why some animals or some living things uh, like bacteria live for only a few minutes and other organisms can live for hundreds of years. And it's an interesting question. I don't think there is a universal answer to that. And so why you can't do that? Well, you know, you think about that every living system has a unique environment that they live in, right? So they have certain nutritional requirements. They have got certain competition for survival. Their food sources are limiting. Their environment is more hostile. They have different levels of stress. And so depending on whatever the conditions that they are dealing with will impact the ability of these micro machines. And so if somebody is constantly dealing with the stress, always, you know, having challenges, would end up consuming a lot more energy in a small amount of time. And so the much smaller organism, much more vulnerable ones, you would see they have a shorter lifetime generally, right? And so basically over time, but during evolution, these things have been selected to sort of only perform certain functions. And so the nature has also kind of selected them and allowed them to reproduce very fast because they've got only such a short period of time to live, right? But humans, we have a longer period of time, and that's because we are able to, during this time, are able to grow, mature, and reproduce. And then after that, whatever happens is consequence of how we treat our bodies, right? So there's also other components coming is the kind of food that we eat, exercise that we might do, or better quality of life that we might have, and all of those lifestyle changes that we have, those will contribute to how long you live. But as far as nature is concerned, it's selected us only to reproduce. So if you look at humans, you know, 100 years ago, the mean lifespan used to be very short. And then it's just as technology has evolved, uh, medical science has become more and more advanced, the lifespan has consistently increased. And so you see humans that can live over 100 years, right, as some of them, and researchers have sort of mapped what the risk factors are for people as they get older. So you know that as people get older, they're more susceptible to diseases. And as people get older, they can have one disease or two disease or three disease. As they get older, they can have multiple problems. And so risk factor continues to increase as people get older. And the death is basically just stochastic as they get older, have multiple risks, and sometimes just, you know, stochastically or randomly one of the things just take over and cause the massive organ failure and could result into death of them. I have one follow-up to that, which is if, you know, evolution just wants us to reproduce, make the next generation and all that. I mean, humans are the first example, but we seem particularly bad because we can't reproduce for the first, like, several years, like more than a decade, right? So why is it that evolution hasn't made us all be able to like reproduce within like a day or two? Yeah, that's another interesting, interesting question. So if you look at different organisms and uh, how those organisms develop, you see that the different levels of complexity, right? 
more complex systems need more time to develop. And so, you know, in case of humans, it takes nine months for babies to, you know, starting from fertilized embryo to become fully mature, that much time it takes. Just because even though micro machines are working continuously, just as fast as they do in the adults too, right? But it's just that the amount of work that they have to do is just enormous. So it takes so many months for the fertilized embryo to become a mature baby. So in order for us to be able to successfully give rise to babies, we have been selected to live at least long enough that allows us to not only fertilize embryo to give rise to babies, but also taking various chance factors that takes into consideration that one might not reproduce on day one, right? Might take, you know, several years to reproduce, right? And so, you know, during evolution, all that matters is whosoever is successful best fit will survive. If not successful, would basically get extinct, right? So humans have survived because humans were able to sort of reproduce in that period of time and slowly selected, as you know, that Homo sapiens, there are many related species to humans that came into existence, but then got lost, right? And so nature has been working continuously to select the best population, and Homo sapiens is the ultimate output of that. And now that doesn't mean that the Homo sapiens humans might not evolve, you know, there may be more smarter humans, who knows, as technology continues to evolve and our brain works differently, our body parts work differently, right? So if you think about that, earliest humans used to be just the hunters. They live in forests, they just hunt for food, and our body basically evolved to utilize the whatever they eat uh, to produce energy. And so the fat, fat that is considered bad nowadays, well, it wasn't bad when the humans evolved. Because humans might find an animal today that they could kill, but then they might go hungry for several days or weeks, right? So body evolved to utilize fat that it would break down and produce energy when they're not getting food. And so there was no storage possibility. But now we have a very good lifestyle, very safe, very secure. And so the body has, has or is still recognizes fat as a premium product. So when you see fatty stuff, you know, your saliva gets going. You like fried chips. Bodies still thinking we are living in a stone age, but reality is not. So as a result, we are not breaking down fat as fast as the ancestors used to do. So fat accumulates in our body, right? Things that we consume faster, this carbohydrates or glucose, that breaks down like that. And our brain is designed to use glucose because, right, because it's an instant source of energy. But for the rest of the body, it's okay if you're moving a little bit slower or so, as long as there's no threat. And if there's a threat, obviously you have to run fast to survive. But other than that, you can survive by breaking down fat, which takes more time to break because it's a slower process, more energy consuming process, and would allow animals to live longer. So it's a very interesting evolutionary angle. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we jump into other questions, I have a couple of thoughts I want to bring up and try to form into a question. So earlier we were mentioning about reproduction. And this isn't based on any hard data or statistics, but from what I've noticed, people tend to, especially in first world countries, value education over, you know, starting a family, which leads them to having children in the later years of their life. And obviously for females, they don't have reproductive ability after a certain point, they hit menopause. So is this trend of, you know, valuing education and career and having children later in their life than in the past, almost against what we should be doing genetically or to increase our fitness? Yeah, that's a, that's another interesting question. So my colleague, Dr. Singh, Rama Singh, he works on the menopause related and he would be able to give you more insights into that. But 
from what I know is, and based on his research and other people's research, that menopause basically evolved because nature sort of selected for females to reproduce at certain age. And after that, they were not reproducing and therefore mutations accumulated in those genes. There's no longer necessary for reproduction. So why spend all the energy maintaining those tissues and, and cells when they're no longer in use? So if humans, they delay the reproduction because they have other things in their life that they're more important and they're more interested in, it wouldn't be surprised if the menopause slowly shifts to an older stage, older, older ages life because it is going to get slowly and slowly selected. And so the difficulty with understanding this concept is that evolution is a very slow machine. And we as a human have sort of tendency to see results or want to see results very quickly in a matter of minutes or hours or days, right? And so for us, it's very hard to understand how could that be possible? But believe me, that's what has happened so far, and it is continuing. So humans are continuously evolving as we speak. <laughs> okay, just jumping back before we get more to evolution. Uh, earlier you mentioned about fat, right? And I've seen that. I think it was my former TA. I don't know if he's Dr. Malik yet, but you guys were featured on at the McMaster website for your work on lipid metabolism. And I was just wondering, what is the link between lipid metabolism and aging? So that's a, that's an interesting angle. So obesity is one of the highest risk factor of mortality. And so it has been found that, as I said, our body has evolved to utilize fat and converts that into the energy. There are a lot of processes in our body that depend on fat and, and not just energy, but also cells that are lipid by layers, right? So they need fat, the various other proteins that get modified and so on. So there are many uses of that. But if you have too much fat, then that's also bad because cells will need to take care of. And so what will they do? They start to accumulate those fat molecules in different forms. And when they're just no longer able to, the fat will just start to distribute in other parts of the body, which is what results into obesity, right? On the other hand, the faster breakdown of fat is also bad because then you're losing energy much faster than needed. So lipid metabolism research that we've done is basically, it's about balancing the energy, production and consumption. So, so animals can grow, utilize fat and mature and live longer. And so if you disrupt either production or breakdown of that, you end up this imbalance, both of which are bad. Okay. So while too much accumulation of fat, which is a poor breakdown, can result into obesity or other kinds of problems in cells, not just obesity, but other types of problems that cells will have because they can't modify their proteins and so on or cells. But also not having enough fat is also bad, right? Because the cells and tissues need that. In that sense, that research is very interesting. So obviously you've studied lifespan a bunch. So what is one of the most interesting things you found while studying lifespan and age? And how did it come about? And what does it mean for humans like us? Our research on lifespan and or aging basically started from work that we did on one protein, which is generally a family of a scaffolding protein. So scaffolding proteins are basically proteins that have got different domains, and they actually are able to recruit other proteins to form bigger complexes. And then these complexes then will perform different functions in cell, right? So they sort of act as like more like a docking thing, are able to bring in other, like act as a glue. And so, you know, we found that when you disrupt the function of this protein, and we did that in nematodes, but this protein is conserved in humans. And so when you disrupt the function of this protein in nematodes, what we found that animals have a shorter lifespan, means they die faster. They have higher level of stress, 
variety of stress. We describe stress in biological terms that associated with organelles like mitochondria or ER, but also cytosolic stress that involves a role of the saccharin protein, heat stock proteins that function to protect various proteins in the cells and other processes as well that this protein is involved in. And so that was the initial work that kind of got us into stress response and the aging field. And so that's something we found very interesting that here is one protein that when you don't have this protein functioning properly, a lot of these processes are disrupted. We did more work on this, and we found that one of the processes that this protein controls is functioning of muscles. And so you know that the, if the muscles aren't functioning properly or degenerating faster, it could result into a lot of disorders uh, and, and affect the mobility of animals, right? And so we found that this protein is molecularly, whatever it does, ultimately results into maintenance of the, the muscle function. And if you don't have this, the muscles degenerate faster. And that causes somehow links to the stress level, goes up and causes animals to die because they're not able to you know, move properly, not able to feed properly, and all these other complications that happens that kills them. This aspect, function of this protein appears to be conserved in higher animal systems. And we find that literature says that this protein also seems to be important for muscles in humans. We don't know if it plays exactly the same role, and that is one of the areas that we are very interested in investigating how much of this protein function will be conserved in humans in terms of maintaining the mobility, muscle health, and so on. So we find that research very interesting. So you mentioned you studied nematodes. Why nematodes, and are they ideal for studying aging? Yeah, so nematodes have been at the forefront of aging research. In fact, most of the initial discoveries came from nematode system, and that I think has to do with a few characteristics that these nematodes have that offer advantages. So one is that they have a shorter lifespan. So they live about 20 days or so. Okay? So whatever manipulations you do, you see the results within a matter of two, two and a half weeks. Okay? So you know, mean lifespan of nematodes is about 15 days or so. Uh, so you get the results very quickly and allows you to sort of come up with the newer questions and you can address those questions faster. The other advantages that it has is that it has got a transparent body. So you can see organs even in alive animals. So if you're changing function of a gene, manipulating genes, you can see how those genes are affecting different organs. And biologists or researchers will like to investigate where the genes is functioning, which organs, and for that we look at its localization. And all of that we are able to do in live animals because we have this green fluorescent protein these are fluorescent proteins, and we don't have to sacrifice animals. We can examine where this fluorescent is located, which part of the body, and we can then tell which tissues, which organs are utilizing this, these genes, right? So transparent body of the animal is very advantageous. Other things is that it has got a fully sequenced genome. So as you know, that genome is very useful in inferring the function of genes and their networks and lots of other things. Nematodes happen to be the very first multicellular organisms that were sequenced. And nematode sequence is of very high quality. So not only we know the sequence, but we also understand for a lot of those sequences what proteins they make. So all of these and plus many other experimental advantages has made nematodes an excellent system for research on aging, research on the stress response pathways. It's sort of related, but... We just talked about your research on aging. 
And looking at aging applying to humans, a lot of the leading researchers in the science field who are speaking out about how to possibly fix aging, they're usually talking about the damage repair approach. I was just wondering what your take on it was, because this is more of a let the proteins accumulate and then we'll get rid of them. Or, you know, if there's a cancer cell, we'll get rid of it rather than starting from the genome or genetics level. What's your take on that approach? Given that the pace of research can be only so fast, I believe that we got to take a multidisciplinary approach and as well as working on multiple fronts. Okay, In a shorter term, you not only want to gain more fundamental understanding, which could then help develop drugs and so on, but also you want to take care of people who are getting older, right? And so you got to find some quick fix solution if there are, you know, say Alzheimer's or Parkinson's patient, and these are also age-related neurodegenerative diseases, cancer, which is also age-related diseases. You got to find drugs so you can treat people who are right now, at least something that improves the quality of life for those patients. But then on the other hand, you got to embark on more fundamental research What are the genes involved in, what is their mechanisms, interacting partners, and so on, so we can then target those proteins, those components with certain drugs, and then try to, you know, either stabilize their function, or if they're bad, then break down their function, whatever, and so they can have a more comprehensive approach, more foundational approach to increasing the quality of life and the healthy span of animals. It's got to be multifactorial on different fronts. So how much of genetics play into the factor of living longer or just longevity in general? You know, a lot, actually. So, you know, we just talked about why different organisms have different lifespan. So it's both genetic factors, environmental factors, and the lifestyle of organisms. All of these come together to affect the lifespan. And so, you know, genetics plays a very important role. If our body is not capable of fighting certain infections, then we might not survive. And so even in humans, there are variations. As we are dealing with COVID, the mortality rate is about 2% or 3% and something in that range, right? Varies from countries to countries um, and also ethnic factors and, and geographical factors. So majority of the people are actually fine, right? They don't have problems. And so you wonder why it's the same virus getting into everybody's tissues or they're in their, inside their body but only a few people have symptoms, and very few actually end up developing serious diseases and die, right? And so genetic plays a very important role, and there are variations. And so even at that level, you know, you might say philosophically, well, nature is selecting. Whosoever is weak is going to die. Whosoever is strong will survive, right? And so people who survive presumably have a better genetic system. And they're able to now have more opportunity to pass on their genes to their offspring, who hopefully will have even fitter genome who would then in turn be able to pass on their genes and people who had poor genetic system, less efficient, had basically died. They were not able to pass on their genes. So this is how basically evolution works, right? It slowly selects more efficient systems, right? And over a long period of time, you see a massive impact. So for quite some time, these things happen within a threshold. You don't see a major impact, but after that, you see a sea change. And probably virus will not be able to infect populations uh, that have survived and are resistant. Okay, I have a bit of a personal question, and it's for my own understanding. So listeners who are listening, maybe you have the same question too. But we talked earlier a bit about cancer. I always thought cancer was more of a time-related thing. Like, you know, even if you don't age, you always have a chance of developing cancer just because by chance, right? I always thought cancer was time-related and not age-related. 
but then how is cancer specifically an age-related disease rather than just being a function of time? You know, I think in your question, there was a little bit of answer embedded. So <laughs> age is nothing but the passing of time. As time goes by, you're getting older. So when you say that, okay, you know, we want to extend the life and then you're not aging, actually you are aging, but just that your life span has become longer. So yes, you're right that cancer in a most fundamental sense, the ones that caused by mutations in genes, right? Because there are other types of cancers, genetic cancers that can result from spontaneous mutations in genes as cells are dividing, right? And DNA is replicating and so on. Uh, so it's, it is definitely by chance. And Early on, micro-machines are repairing those mutations. But then as time goes by, the repair machinery also becomes less and less efficient. And it's like, you know, somebody is doing 10 mistakes, and in the beginning, they're able to correct all those 10 mistakes. But as time goes by, they're correcting lesser and lesser mistakes. So, And so whatever is left behind has a chance of doing something bad. Not necessarily they will do bad things every time, but sometimes they could. And so cancer is also by chance. It's a matter of time. And so then as you get older, time goes by, more and more chances are there that you're likely to hit some very important gene, and that could result into triggering of the cancerous disease. Yeah. This is two questions. So could you briefly, one, make the distinction between is cancer a chronologically based age disease or is it a biologically based age disease? And then second is, let's say we do cure aging like the actual biological aging, not the chronological, because you can't do that, but biological, does that mean to get rid of cancer, we have to cure cancer separately? It's sort of related questions. Cancer typically is age-related, unless until there are other types of cancers that, that are genetic and then caused by like a BRCA mutation and so on that makes, you know, women prone to those cancers. But generally the cancer, is just by chance the mutations will occur. So as people get older and older, their chance of accumulating some spontaneous mutations will increase. And so if you extend the lifespan or biological age of people, you would expect fewer chances of cancerous growth. Okay. In human case, things are way more complicated because we are not only experiencing one type of you know, environment. We live in a very complex environment. So on one hand, we want to extend our life and have better medication and you know, exercise and things like that. On the other hand, these a lot of products that are developed for human consumption, and a lot of them involve chemicals, and these chemicals are mutagens. We need more food because human population is growing. So how do you get more food? Well, you need to be agriculturally more efficient, which means you know, more crops means you got to make sure that they, they're not infected with insects. A lot more pesticides being used. Pesticides are toxic, can cause cancers in humans, right? People have lifestyle, right? They're drinking, they're having various kinds of cons other consumptions. So it's a very complex for humans, right? We, are not, we don't have a very simple lifestyle where we're experiencing one type of thing. So I would say, yes, scientifically, extending the lifespan should reduce the chances of cancers. But then there are these other environmental and lifestyle factors that are very hard to dissociate. And so it would be hard to say if frequency will go down in the future. Would you consider cancer as a barrier to living forever? And if you do, what are some other things that might be a barrier to living forever? Well, so while you talk about cancer, in fact, cancer is not the most deadly disease when it comes to the survival of humans. 
if you go, most people you would see would die of things like malaria, things like diabetes, things like other kinds of diseases. And it's only in the developed countries where not having problems with those other diseases that are more prevalent in third world countries. So if you go out there, look at the world statistics, cancer is not the most deadliest disease. Okay, Coming back to cancer, yes, we are able to extend the lifespan and a better quality of life. You can reduce those chances. But for a lot of population living somewhere else, they're dealing with more basic fundamental issues and they are more detrimental to them. So related to this, like obviously if we could fix whatever mutation that causes cancer, then yeah, you would stop it. But on an evolutionary scale, we know that mutations is not bad because that gives rise to, you know, fitness and all that. But as we live longer, how do you know how much to correct the human genome's mistakes and whatnot? Where would you draw the line in terms of genetic editing to help us live longer? So this is something that has a, a lot of ethical issues in there, right? There's a lot of debates happening on this, how much one would want to correct the genome. And now the technology, genome editing technology is available and researchers have got even Nobel Prize this year for that. And so, you know, where do you draw the line? To be honest with you, I'm actually not quite sure because you know, on one hand, I would say, yes, we want to correct the genome to, you know, remove diseases like cancer or other diseases, you know, sickle cell anemia or, you know, other kinds of diseases where it is known that there are, you know, Huntington where there's a single protein and things like that, right? But then on the other hand, whatever one person thinks that is a bad thing and therefore this should be fixed or could be fixed, for other person, it could be different perspective, right? And they might see something that we might term them as more luxurious thing that they want that, oh, I want my baby to not be obese, okay? And therefore, correct all the genes that will make them obese, not make them obese, right? And so one might say, well, obesity is not necessarily going to kill them. Of course, it is a risk factor. But for different people, there may be different needs and different desires. So how do we reconcile these desires? For some people, it could be very basic, fundamental real disease that is going to kill their babies. And for some, it could be more luxurious, uh, more superficial things, changing the color of the skin, making them more bigger or taller. They could be better basketball player, whatever, right? And so this is not an easy question to answer. It will require government taking approach and will basically have to come down with some sort of law. Because I think that it is unethical to start tinkering the human genome and start producing what we call as a designer babies. No matter whatever you say is a genuine need, there would always be a counter argument to that, right? Genuine needs differ from people to people, countries to countries, population to population. It's a very tough question. So I would say that for anything, just to start with, we should not be messing up with the humans, you know. Let nature evolution take care of it. And when there is a law in place that yes, genome could be modified, and we will see at that point that what everyone agrees on or majority agrees on, right? We talked about this a little bit earlier regarding reproduction and the later age of reproduction. So with the trend of people, you know, reproducing less frequently, like less willing to have five or six babies, you know, maybe one, two, not more than that, especially in developed countries. Is there any ramifications associated with having a slower generational turnover because of these later babies, later life babies? Well, I would say not in our lifetime. <laughs> in, in a shorter time span, 
how many years or hundreds of years one goes back to look at their lineage, right? I mean, you go to your grandparents, great-great-grandparents, and then after five, six generations, you probably don't even care, right? I don't see much of an issue that people are going to reproduce slower or less or later in life because there are other things that come into play for humans that protect individuals, right? There's so much support system in place. So even if you're producing one offspring, you have done your job. You passed on your genes. Back in old days, human would reproduce way more, make more and more babies because there was a lot more chance factor. The death rate was very, very high back in old days. So, But that's no longer the case. So I think for modern humans, even one offspring basically means you've done your job. So as long as the chain is there, your population is growing, your chain is growing. Um, but, you know, for nature, it's not about individual change. It's about the human race, right? Nature cares about human as a whole. And so, you know, we might be selfish thinking about my race, but if you look at, say, bacteria or a colony of ants, they might have their own families and so on. But for them, for us, it's the whole ant. It's just the population. So it's an interesting, interesting way of thinking, but that's what it is. <laughs> Listen, as long as you reproduce at some point, no evolutionary stagnation, we're good. Yes, I think so. One final question before we start wrapping up, well, a few questions before we start wrapping up. We've interviewed a lot of people so far, and they each have their own predictions of what's going to happen in the next 10, 20, 100 years. Maybe by, let's say, 2050, right? By 2050, where do you see the progress in terms of longevity? I would say that if I were to predict what might happen in the next 20, 30 years, I would say that both lifespan and health span will be extended. You know, as recently I was reading an article which basically said that there is no limit to human lifespan. It's a topic that is quite debatable because there are people who believe that human life has reached its maximum. I mean, if you see that how old people are living, there are many, you know, super uh, centenarians, right? If you plot them on a graph, age versus time, you see it's plateauing. You don't see people living 150 years, for example, right? But then people do believe that, with better quality of life, better health system, better support system, people could keep living longer. And so I think that will happen. Life is spent, health is spent, uh, will certainly be extended. You know, I mentioned about the risk of death as age increases. And so people who are newborn babies or teenagers have a very, very low risk factor versus people who are 80 years old. But when they go past 80, 90 or 100, we don't understand why some people are living so long. What is it in their body? And there's a lot of research going on in there. I would say um, on the technology front, I expect to see a lot of developments supporting better quality of life, better products. Uh, there's a lot of research. It's called the smart systems to monitor what's going on around people. The sensors all the time, they're checking, are we walking correctly or not? Do we have a chance of falling down? You know, have we performed all our functions as we expected every day? And, and if there are changes, there are all kinds of things. So I see that technology improving a lot and helping better quality of life. I would say drugs. There are lots of research happening on the front of developing drugs that would enhance health and fitness of humans. And I expect to see many of those coming in the next 20, 30 years for sure. Yeah. So speaking of the future, I'm sure there are a lot of students and younger individuals listening in right now. And they're interested in tackling biology of aging and all these other fields. So what is the best way for them to get involved? And is there a specific field you think is more promising? Not more promising, but 
very interesting and might be of interest to someone listening? First of all, a lot will depend on the interests of the individual. So if you're interested in biological aspects of aging, then, of course, you want to start out by reading some basic articles and so on. There are lots of good articles that come in uh, more general magazines and so on, and then including some scientific papers as well. So start out with reading that and sort of then seeing where that kind of research is being done and try to communicate with those people to see if you could get involved. Then interested, say, in the social acts of aging, or how to manage older population, how to, you know, provide resources to them, even linking to government policies, how municipalities or cities are handling aging population and how that translates into better homes, better quality of care. That's another angle of aging. Then there's a technology angle, which I just mentioned, that people were more interested in engineering kind of aspect. They have that kind of inclination. They could look into technology development. So I would say, yeah, the first thing to start with, depending on the interest, try to find some general articles and so on. There's a lot being written these days. And then from general articles, you got to go to a little bit more into actual research papers And then again, there are some magazines or even websites that provide more easy access to research, I think, without getting too complicated. And then you kind of get into a little more and then start to see what is available closer to you that you could get involved. And the good thing now is in the COVID time is that the Zoom and the Teams and other video channels have become more accessible. And so it might be possible to, you know, meet with someone who works on that. And if you're passionate about that, people would sort of look into you seriously. I mean, for a researcher, you know, like me, I mean, I, I want to see how passionate a student is or someone, not just necessarily a student. There could be some even people who are looking for a change in career and they want to get involved. And so I'm interested in seeing how passionate the person is and have they uh, looked into my area of research, right? And kind of be able to sort of rationalize why they think that research is appealing to them. And I'm sure that you know, not just me, but many of us would be willing to talk to them. We've discussed a lot. I guess whether it be how much fat you should have or do your part and reproduce at some point, is there one single takeaway you want listeners to have? Yeah, I would say boiling down everything to one thing is, is obviously challenging, but I would say that I'm very interested in healthy aging. I think that that is the most important thing, not necessarily living longer, but whatever life is spent that you have, you're most fit, you're able to do things, and you're enjoying life. So I would say whatever activities one does should look at from the angle of healthy aging. Whatever your diet is, whatever your lifestyle is, everything else, just try to make sure that you remain fit, you remain healthy. I think that's something that I'm more interested in. So thank you for coming on. But before we wrap up, if somebody wants to talk to you or learn more about your work, where can they go? Yeah, so I would say that There are several websites through which I can be accessed. Uh, We have a departmental website. So if you go on the Biology McMaster website and look into researchers, you'll be able to find my name and my research and contact information. There's also McMaster has a McMaster Experts website, which is experts.mcmaster.ca. And if you can search my name, you can find there and contact me through that. We also have uh, websites that we manage our own. One is my own personal website, which is bhagwadigupta.net. There is also our lab website, www.macwormlab.net, which, uh, you know, our students maintain. We have some research uh, data there and names of trainees that are involved and so on. So those are different, very different means. I mean, I guess the simplest thing nowadays could be just go out and Google my name and to McMaster and be able to find it. That would be simplest. <laughs> 
but but yeah, but these other websites can give you more information about the research that we do for sure. Okay, so then for all you guys listening, these links will be probably in the description below. Um, once again, Bhagwati, thank you for coming on to I'm Mortal, your source for all things immortal. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on to talk with us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. It's been fun. As it will. Thank you. Take care.